Well, it's been 40 years now since the late R.C. Sproul wrote a book entitled Reasons to Believe. And many of you may have that book on your shelf. And if you've read it, you know that his purpose in writing the book was to answer the top 10 reasons or actually the top 10 objections that people had, at least at that time, regarding the Christian faith. And one of those objections was that the church is full of hypocrites. I don't want to have anything to do with the church because it's just full of a bunch of hypocrites. And I'm sure you've probably heard that at some point. Some people do, some people don't. But it is, I think, even a common objection today that's levied against both believers and the church as a whole. And the most common answer, I think, when when we hear that is to say, you're right, right? It is. It's full of hypocrites. And then we quote D. James Kennedy, who said, there's always room for one more, so join us, right? Uh, But is that really the case? Is the church really full of hypocrites? Dr. Sproul didn't think so. Again, if you've read the book, you know he didn't think so. He actually said it was manifestly false, And he explained why. He wrote this. He said, though no Christian achieves the full measure of sanctification in this life, that we all struggle with ongoing sin does not justify the verdict of hypocrisy. A hypocrite is someone who does things he claims not, I'm sorry, a hypocrite is someone who does things he claims he does not do. Outside observers of the Christian church see people who profess to be Christians and observe that they sin. Since they sin, since they see sin in the lives of Christians, they rush to judgment that therefore these people are hypocrites. But he goes on to say, but for a Christian to simply demonstrate that he's a sinner does not convict him or her of hypocrisy. If we would simply change the charge from the churches full of hypocrites to the churches full of sinners, then we would be quick, right? We would be quick to plead guilty. The church, he says, is the only institution he knows of and that requires an admission of being a sinner in order to be a member. The church is filled with sinners because the church is the place where sinners come and confess their sins and and find redemption from their sins. So, he concludes, in this sense, simply because the church is filled with sinners does not justify the conclusion that the church is filled with hypocrites. All hypocrisy is sin, but not all sin is the sin of hypocrisy. Now, but while sin is not, and I agree with him, and and, I mean, who wouldn't agree with R.C., right? But um, while I agree that all sin is in hypocrisy, and we are not all necessarily hypocrites. We need, it's incumbent upon us to keep a couple of things in mind in regards to, or in regard to, hypocrisy. And the first is this, we all struggle with it from time to time. There's not a person in this room that doesn't struggle with it at some point. And in our passage tonight, Jesus warns the people that that are there around him of the hypocrisy of the scribes. But that doesn't mean 
that only pastors or elders or ministry leaders deal with or struggle with hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is something that we all deal with. It's something that we must, must all be aware of and, and combat, particularly because of the danger it exposes uh, us to, or, or because of the danger to which it exposes. Particularly abhorrent, right? It's tragically foolish. It's wicked. Therefore, it is folly, like all sin, but there's something about hypocrisy that takes it to another level, and I say that due to the reaction that hypocrites elicited from Jesus, right? Jesus was able to remain gentle and meek and mild when it came to tax collectors and prostitutes, but when it came to hypocrites, he wasn't as cordial. He was a little more harsh, and again, I think that's due to the danger to which hypocrisy exposes others. So our outline tonight is going to look like this, and at first I was, I was a little caught off guard, but, but I'm good. I'm only preaching through verse 4, okay? Um, <laughs> it took me a minute, but, but we're good. Um, the, descript, the, the outline looks like this, the description of hypocrisy, the danger of hypocrisy, and then the defeat of hypocrisy, right? Those three things, the description of hypocrisy, the danger of hypocrisy, and the defeat of hypocrisy, and as is our custom, let's go to the Lord in prayer uh, before we go any further. Uh, Father, by your spirit, would you grant power to the preaching of your word, and would you grant all of us the spiritual eyes and ears that we need to appraise uh, and apprehend the truth regarding Christ and his gospel. Please awaken our attention and convict us and challenge us, but then, of course, refresh us and encourage us and comfort us. As always, I am unfit for this task to which you've called me, and so I pray that you would grant me grace, uh, that you would fill me with your spirit so that I might be able to do something uh, good for you and for your church this evening. And I pray these things for Christ's sake and for the sake of his church. Amen. Well, those of you uh, who are guests with us, we've been going through the study of Luke, and and for those of you who, who have been with us, you are going to remember that back in the first 12 verses of chapter 12, we defined hypocrisy, and we defined it as mask-wearing pretense. And that definition comes from the Greek word, which comes from the world of drama and theater. It referred to the masks that were worn by the actors, and at that time, Actors would play multiple roles, and the way they would switch roles is simply by switching masks. And over time, it came to be used by people who intentionally deceived others. And more times than not, they had an evil intent behind it. And this hypocrisy took many different forms, and we've seen those many different forms throughout our study. And back in chapter 12, uh, the Pharisees were the ones being targeted. And in, in those particular cases, or in some of those cases, uh, those Pharisees were practicing uh, privately the sins that they were condemning in public. And then in other cases, uh, they were dumbing down the law of God. They wanted to make the law of God more doable, more manageable. And at the same time, 
They were making other things easier in order to avoid, um, avoid them. Um, and of course, avoiding the the accountability that they were placing upon others. So in other words, these Pharisees were creating loopholes that they could exercise in order to keep from living up to their own standards that they were holding others to. But in so doing, of course, they were being deceptive. They were being deceptive about both the character of God and the level of obedience that He desired. But here in verse 20, or here in chapter 20, these last few verses the hypocrisy takes a little different look. It's got a different look to it. It's a different form. Had, having had enough, as Aaron pointed out last week, um, Jesus has had enough at this point of all the stupid questions that are coming his way. Um, and he's tired of the attempts by the religious establishment to trip him up. He's grown weary from, from all of the political and theological, uh, you know, get you kind of things. And Jesus turns to his disciples and, and he once again warns, warns them of the treacherous nature of the hypocrisy that they are facing. And it's the hypocrisy of the scribes in particular, who, who you'll remember, uh, the scribes were compliance officers, right? The Pharisees made the policies and the scribes carried them out and made sure others carried them out as well. And so if you look at verse 46, you notice Jesus says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. And then he says, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. In other words, the, the, the scribes are simply putting on a show of pretense for all to see. They're, they're pretending. Uh, Boys and girls, you know how that goes. You're still doing those kinds of things. You're pretending. You're, you're putting on clothes, and you're playing around the house, and you're playing pirates and princesses and, and other things. And, right, the, 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 you're pretending to be something that you're really not. You may want to be, but, but you're not. And these scribes are doing the same things. They're attempting to publicly portray themselves to be something that they're not, in private or something different than they are in private. They're vaunting themselves. They're presenting themselves to be more important and more prestigious and more spiritual and more righteous, more pious than they really were. They used their robes, right? They, they used their robes that were supposed to divert attention away from themselves and to God to actually divert attention away from God to themselves. They were actually um, using greetings and encounters they had with the people in the marketplace, rather than using them to minister to the people that they encountered, they used it to garner personal promotion and, and pre again, prestige, right? Drawing, again, the, the attention toward themselves. They, they treated the synagogues like it was the amp and had VIP seating for those who paid more money. And it was all for the purpose of keeping who they really were in secret, right? keeping it in the shadows. They wore the right clothes. 
they appeared in the right places, they attended all the right parties, they worked their way into all the right seats and to the head tables, and they even turned their prayers into these dramatic soliloquies. All the while, again, drawing attention, turning everyone's attention away from God and back to themselves. They were hiding their sin and their failures. They were, they were hiding their fears behind these facades, false fronts. They were walking illustrations of what it meant to be superficial and artificial. And the and the most sinister part of it all is that they were, this disingenuous charade had the purpose of disguising the fact that they were taking advantage of widows, some of the most vulnerable people in, in the culture. We're not really sure what or what devouring their houses actually means or meant. But you can imagine that there are no positive options. It, it could have been something as simple as they were, being taken, they were taking advantage of the widow's hospitality. Or it could have meant they were lining their pockets by bilking the widows of all that they had by mismanaging their estates. But whatever it was, it was for their own gain, for their own advantage, and came at the expense of, of the widows. And in verse 1 of chapter 21, Luke describes a real-time illustration of what he said. Luke says, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now, if you walked in and you saw the verse behind me, you were probably expecting some sort of sermon or message on sacrificial giving, because that's typically how this passage is read. Um, and what they do, those who preach in that way, they, they contrast the offerings of the rich who are giving out of their abundance and therefore not giving sacrificially with the offering of the widow who gave all she had out of her poverty and therefore was giving sacrificially. And the application, of course, is made that we all need to give sacrificially. And while that's true, and because we've heard that, right? We've heard that in the Gospel of Luke. We've heard about the importance about being open-handed with our things and with our position, with our money, and that we are to give and to live sacrificially. But I don't believe that that's Jesus' point right here at this particular point. Because again, context means everything, right? So based upon everything that's gone on before... Um, it, but just, not even on, on before, but just before, right? The verses that we read at the end of 20, right? Jesus has just condemned the scribes for their hypocrisy. 
He's condemned them. And what's going to follow that John providentially read and should have, now that I think about it, should have read is everything that went on beyond what part of which was what? The destruction of the temple, right? And judgment that was to come. And it's in between those two things that that Jesus points out what's going on in, in the temple, right? It seems to me that this widow, while willing to give to the point of sacrifice and does give her last two leptons, which is less than a cent, while she's willing to do that, she's not being held up as an example to follow. She's being held up as an example of how the scribes were taking advantage of the most vulnerable among them. It was an example of devouring their homes. You see, her, her giving all that she had, she was giving as a voluntary offering. And what those scribes should have been doing was saying, put that back in your pocket. And they should have said, and we're going to take some of this that the others have given, and we're going to go take you and get groceries. But they didn't do it. What they did was diametrically opposed to what they should have done, according to what the law had said. Listen to a few examples. First, from Deuteronomy. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns and the Levite because he has no portion or inheritance with you and the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow you and all the work of your hands that you do. The prophet Isaiah, the Lord through the prophet Isaiah says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, be just, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Exodus chapter 22 says, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child, and if you do mistreat them, and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. That's not a positive thing, by the way. It is for the widow, but not for the ones who are harming the widows. And that's just three of many, many examples. I encourage you to go and to look and to see how many times widows are mentioned and in, in, in what context. And this mandate was not just in the Old Testament. It rolled over into the New Testament, so much so that James even says that taking care of widows is a sign of pure and undefiled religion. And while it's debated, I fall on the side that what we read about in Luke, I mean, I'm sorry, in Acts, by Luke, who wrote Acts, uh, Luke wrote Acts, um, what we see in Acts chapter 6 is we see the, the office of deacon kind of rise up and is established. Why? Because widows were not being taken care of. Luke writes this, Now in the days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And so the twelve summoned the full numbers of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, including care of widows. And yet the scribes are doing the exact opposite. Again, they should have told the widows, stop, we'll, we'll, we'll take care of you. We don't, we don't need your last two cents. Or, I'm sorry, leptons. We don't need your last half a penny. 
Jesus is setting up a contrast. Don't get me wrong. There's an obvious contrast going on. The contrast between rich and poor. The contrast between unfaithful and faithful. The contrast between abundance and sacrifice. It's there. And and in a way, Jesus is commending her. She's being faithful. But he doesn't say go and do likewise. Not here. He commends her faith. But at this point in time, his attention and his purpose is to point out the treachery of the scribes that are hiding behind their hypocrisy. And they're taking advantage of her faith. And they're using her money for their own ends. So what we need to do is pause, and of course, we need to to take a minute, and I want us to consider two points, all right? Um, Both involve a call to beware, and the first involves a call to beware of the hypocrisies of others, right? Because Jesus is calling those who are listening at that time to beware of the hypocrisy then, and I think he is calling us to beware of hypocrisy uh, of others today. We, we too need to be aware, to be aware of, of those um, who are pretending through their outward appearances and through their outward attitudes and their outward actions. Those who are publicly portraying themselves to be different than they are in private. We need to be aware of those who, who are doing so particularly to take advantage of the faith of others. Specifically, the vulnerable among us. For example, let me, let me encourage us to beware of, of heresy hunters and discernment bloggers and, and all those who are more concerned about what we should be against and what we should be for and, and about what is evil and wrong rather than what is good and right, simply so they can be seen as righteous and as an authority. and therefore needed in the fight against false teaching. We need to beware, please beware of of the virtue signalers and those involved in identity politics who prey upon the sensitivities of others in order to manipulate attitudes and, and profits for their own benefit. Beware of even of even some celebrity pastors and, of course, all health and wealth gospel proponents who line their pockets with the money of the unsuspecting faithful. Beware of those who use their spiritual positions to exploit and oppress others rather than meet the needs of the most vulnerable among us and who build their own little kingdoms here on earth and expect to be served as they promote themselves in their own causes. And beware of those who who miss the irony and use this text to do exactly what 
the text speaks against. And the best way to do that is by being Berean-like. And what I mean by that is we need to listen and to pay attention to what is being said and taught at every occasion and to determine as we search the scriptures, we are to determine whether what is being said and taught is true or not. And as Aaron said last week, that includes what is said and taught from this pulpit. Second, we need to be aware of the hypocrisy of others, but we also need to be aware of the hypocrisy within ourselves. There isn't, again, there isn't anyone in this room, as I said earlier, there isn't anyone in this room that doesn't deal with it from time to time. There's, there's no one in this room who is above falling prey to pretending or portraying ourselves to be in public what we're not in private. The allure, right? There's an allure of va- vaunting ourselves and presenting ourselves to be more important, to be more spiritual, to be more pious, to be more righteous. I mean, that allure is strong, and we must own up to the fact that we are just as susceptible to hiding behind our titles, in our positions, in our prominence, in our practices in order to gain attention and accolades from other people. We, we put on the right clothes. We appear in the right places, we go to the right parties, we work our way to the right seats, and we make our way to the head tables, and we support the right causes, and we read the right books, and we take on the right labels, and we say the right things, and we even pray in ways to turn people's attention away from the Lord and on to ourselves so we can be admired and applauded. It's easy to hide our sin and our fear and our failures behind facades. We we find safety, right? We all know those times when we find safety in remaining superficial and artificial. And unfortunately, the more we succeed, the deeper and deeper and deeper we bury ourselves into those secret places. Right? The more we succeed, our, our hypocrisy is just reinforced. But we've got to beware and fight against it. And the question is why? And all we have to do is look at verse 47. Jesus says, hypocrites will receive a greater condemnation. Hypocrisy is dangerous. It brings judgment. And two reasons, I think, why this particular sin, um, Jesus says what he says here in verse 47, that it will bring greater condemnation. The first is this. uh, Philip Ryken puts it this way. When we try to be great ourselves, or at least seem to be great, there is hardly any room left for the greatness of God. In other words, hypocrisy eclipses the glory of God. 
Hypocrisy is an attempt to put our own glory rather than His glory on display. We put ourselves on display rather than Him. And basically, it's an audacious claim that God is unnecessary. We don't need Him. And it also, in a way, as I've thought about it this week, it plays Him as a fool. And it plays Him as a fool because the hypocrite believes that he can deceive or trick God. And, and they believe that they can deceive God by into thinking that they're better than they really are. So in the end, really, hypocrisy simply mocks the Lord. And secondly, hypocrisy, again, shifts the attention from the hypocrite and the attention of those watching away from God and onto him or herself, to sinful man. The, the hypocrite is simply putting his or her self-righteousness on display in order to self-justify himself or herself before others and before God. And so all eyes are turned on the individual. And all of the fallacious words and attitudes and actions right, ultimately lead other people astray. Right? And particularly, it leads them down a path of hypocrisy because they're simply striving to be as good as or better than how others are portraying themselves. It's a wicked game. And when the culprits are spiritual leaders, trust is betrayed, they violate their call, they violate their responsibility to care for those who have been entrusted to them. Again, because they're taking their own eyes off of Jesus, and they're taking the eyes of others off of Jesus, so that all eyes can be on them. And we've seen the destruction. Which leads us to our last point. The only way to escape the snares of hypocrisy and to avoid the condemnation that awaits, the only way to defeat hypocrisy is to stop pretending and to come out of hiding. That's what Jesus has been doing all along. It's not said here. It's what he's been doing all along. Bring them out, to bring them out into the open. And that begins with repentance. And unfortunately, we, we naturally are afraid of repentance. Listen to how my friend Kevin Hale put it. He said, if we're honest, the idea of repentance can fill us with fear. The Bible calls us to repent of our sin, but our fearful flesh tells us to hide our sin. We fear owning up to the reality of our sin because we fear being rejected if we are truly known. The faulty thinking on which our fear of repentance operates is threefold. First, we mistakenly think repentance is a concession for those who just couldn't get it together. And if there are two teams with God, the varsity made up the righteous and the junior varsity consisting of the repentant. Second, we mistakenly think that we're not, not already fully known by God and confusing repentance with earthly confession. We mistakenly think we are revealing new information that may lead to disappointment or condemnation once our sin is brought to light. 
And then finally, he says, third, confusing repentance with an earthly apology. We mistakenly think forgiveness is in response, or, or forgiveness in response to repentance is optional. Brothers and sisters, three things we need to remember. One, we need to remember that repentance is not simply an option for those who are strong enough and faithful enough to uh, attain God's righteous standard as if others are able or have the strength and the faith to attain God's righteous standard. Repentance is for everyone. Because we all fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned and fallen short. No one's strong enough. No one's faithful enough. No one's good enough to save themselves. It's an impossibility. And any and all of our self-righteous works are actually filthy rags in terms of our salvation. No one can earn or merit salvation. No one deserves forgiveness. It's all, all of it. As we're going to see in a minute, pictured in baptism, all of it is a gift of God's free grace. We can see it at the table as well. We also need to remember that any and all attempts to pretend that we are better than we are and to hide from our sin and to hide our sin from the Lord is futile because the Lord knows everything about us. There is nothing that he does not know. He knows you, he knows me better than we all know ourselves. Nothing's hidden from his sight. You'll remember from chapter 12, when we, when we look uh, at those, again, those first 12 verses, we were told that whatever we attempt to hide will be made, brought to the light. Whatever we've done in private will be made public. Whatever we've done quietly will be, be, will be proclaimed loudly for all to hear. Whatever has been hidden in our heart, in the innermost part of who we are, that only we know, will be brought out into the open. And the thought, if we, I mean, that, I don't know about you, but that thought of being known that well is extremely uncomfortable. Because we're pretty good at hiding who we truly are, even from the closest people around us in our own homes. But on the other hand, it also should give us great comfort. It should give us great comfort, and it should actually make repentance a little easier than we think. And it it does make repentance easier than we think. For when we repent, we're not bringing anything out into the open that the Lord doesn't already know. As a matter of fact, we're we're not bringing out anything into the open that Christ hasn't already died for. He didn't come to save the righteous. He came to save the sinner. He didn't come to lay his life down for the perfect, but for the imperfect. Brothers and sisters, we cannot shock him. He sees, he sees into these secret places and, 
and the deepest, darkest recesses of our souls, the, the places that we don't believe anyone can see. And he looks and he sees and he calls us beloved. We need to remember he's not going to renege on his promise. He's not going to go back on his promise. He's promised that if we repent, he will be faithful to forgive us of our sins. No matter what that might be. His kindness does not lead us out into the open that he might condemn us. His kindness leads us out into the open that we might repent so that he might restore us and reconcile us back to himself. He can't do otherwise. Ben reminded us tonight when we met with him, um, God's been doing that since the Garden of Eden. When he called Adam and Eve out of hiding. He called them out of hiding. He calls us out of hiding this evening. Hiding in our hypocrisy. So let me ask you, are you tired of keeping up appearances? Have you grown weary? Are you worn out from maintaining the facades and hiding behind those false fronts and playing the games? Have you come to the place where you understand the futility of attempting to cover yourself and your sin? And are you ready to call out to the only one who can cover you fully and finally? Covered by the only one qualified and capable of covering you. Listen to these words from Ligon Duncan. He says, it will not be his lack of love that will keep him from us. It will only be our feeble attempts at covering our own sin and our own self-justification that will keep us from him. Brothers and sisters, we need to stop hiding from each other. And more importantly, we need to stop hiding from Christ and begin hiding in Him. Again, listen to these words from Philip Ryken. He says, whatever we are or are not, let us be what we are before God in a watching world. If we're sinners, let us admit that we're sinners and seek to be saved by grace. If we're not very good Christians, let us admit that we're not very good Christians and ask God to make us better. In the meantime, let us offer to God only what is genuinely and sincerely true, however weak it is and however unworthy we are. May that be so. And finally, while we've learned in our state, we, you know, we in, in a sense, you know, we are all the widow, right? In need, spiritually speaking. We've made that connection before. But let's be honest, truth be told, the majority of us in this room are not the widow in the story, monetarily speaking. We're not, at least today, one of the most vulnerable or one of the least or the last. The, the majority of us in the room are not monetarily poor today. 
Therefore, we have a responsibility to follow the example of Christ that we've seen throughout this gospel. Because Christ not only saw the least and the last, he also affirmed them, but he also met their needs. In fact, in the words of Sinclair Ferguson, he was willing to embarrass them by identifying them and their need in front of others in order to bless them. Their blessing was worth the embarrassment. May we be quick to come alongside the widows and those with needs and less means that are in our midst. And may we become quick as well to come alongside the least and last in our community for their sake and for the sake of Christ as well. Let's pray.